Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is three-time Grammy-winning engineer Mark Lynette. First of all, Amazon is getting into live music events. Now, Amazon is reportedly making its move into the realm of live streaming, talk shows, and podcasts. And it looks like its focus will initially be on live music via virtual concerts. Now, just remember that Amazon acquired Twitch way back in 2014. So that means it has the resources and the infrastructure for integrating live audio features that it doesn't have right now. The word is that Amazon Music has already been in talks with not only the major labels, but major management regarding working with their artist rosters in the future. Keep in mind that Spotify already experimented with virtual concert performances earlier this year, had a series of five shows with artists like the Black Keys and Rag and Bone Man. Now, to take this one step further, Amazon Music is also looking into providing back-end ticketing services, and that's for both virtual and in-person events in the future. So if this keeps going, we're going to see a significant change in the live streaming landscape. Amazon Music has deep, deep pockets. It doesn't have to make money in order to be successful. But what it really wants is market share, and it's afraid that Spotify will claim this territory. So moving into this is one way to maintain that market share and to keep going. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, I was in a restaurant the other day, and the audio was really fantastic. And I looked around to see what the speaker was, and it was a small little Sono speaker, about six inches tall, four inches wide, and it really sounded great. And it got me thinking about how DSP, digital signal processing, has really changed the reproduction world, going from consumer loudspeakers to powered monitor speakers that we have in the studio, all the way up to concert speakers. Now, the way DSP works is it works both on the loudspeaker or speakers and the amplifiers inside a powered speaker. In terms of the amplifier, it looks at the audio signal going through and then it uses an algorithm in order to alter characteristics like the signal's timing or the frequency or the phase. And then it can actually add delay or signal routing or crossover or equalizers, limiters, filters, D to A converters, and even room correction. This is important, especially when we get to concert audio because it frees up rack space and there's a whole lot less cabling, so it's a lot more reliable. Now, when it comes to speakers, DSP is able to compensate for the irregularities of a driver and then alter its frequency response, especially at low levels. So we all know how the Fletcher-Munson curve works, where we're going to hear less low end as the playback level goes down. But DSP can be used to compensate for that, and it does. Now, it goes yet another step because it can look at the temperature of the loudspeaker. 
Of course, the temperature varies depending how hard it's worked. So what can happen is the DSP will monitor that and make sure that it doesn't blow. Same thing with age. All speakers age, and the DSP will take that into account and make sure it's still linear. It's still giving you the response that you want. Not only that, you can get more level without overloading or blowing the speaker, and high levels for long periods of time. Once upon a time, we all had problems with that, where we'd be popping speakers left and right in the studio or in live sound, and it doesn't happen anymore because of DSP. In the beginning of digital, DSP got a really bad name, so companies that had started in the early days using DSP really didn't have much success. That being said, DSP in all sorts of loudspeakers is now the standard, and we're all the better for it. My guest this week is three-time Grammy Award-winning engineer Mark Lynette. Mark and his partner Bob Wortonby have operated their remote audio truck as the West Coast branch of Music Mix Mobile, but they'll now continue as a new independent company, MB Audio. For the past 11 years, MB's 40-foot state-of-the-art mobile audio truck, Horizon, has recorded numerous iconic events, including the Grammy Awards, the Oscars, MTV's VMAs, 10 years of the CMAs, the iHeartRadio Music Awards and Festivals, and projects for a wide range of artists including Coldplay, The Eagles, Stevie Wonder, U2, Miley Cyrus, and Shawn Mendes, just to name a few. During the interview, we spoke about how live recording has changed over the years, the workflow of award shows, his conversion to digital audio, and much more. I spoke at Mark via Zoom. Let's start with your background in remote recording, because you started doing that a long time ago. Yeah, way back. Um, Well, I mean, I've I've done live records as far back as, what, 1981, somewhere in there, 1982, um, when I worked for Warner Brothers. And I started putting my own stuff together not too long after that. I bought a uh, I bought a Steven 16 track portable that actually had belonged to L. Ron Hubbard, who was a fellow Scientologist of, of uh, uh, I mean, Stevens was a, was a Scientologist. And so Scientology had a lot of, a lot of Stevens gear and it was, and it was the most tricked out uh, 16 track he ever built some ways. Well, some ways I regret not still having it, frankly. Yeah. It would be actually nice to have it, but anyway, yeah, and and you know started started doing a lot of remote stuff on my own, you know just for the fun of it. We used to go down and record at a club called Raji's in Hollywood, and I've <laughs> bunch of got a bunch of those tapes that never you know never never got released. <clears throat> um, you know, stuff it all in my station wagon and <laughs> haul it down there. Amazing the things we do when we're young. Um, and then I actually did a bunch of records with the same same setup. A lot of a lot of uh, punk reunion bands, and I did a, I didn't, re- no, I did, I did, a, I did some demo recording uh, for Jane's Addiction um, that wound up on their box set eventually because I had done their first, their first album, which was live, but I didn't record it, I just mixed it, produced it, and so I was, yeah, been doing this, doing that kind of stuff forever, and then that it, it got bigger in the '90s and early 2000s. I got more equipment. And started actually uh, uh, getting a fair amount of work 
mostly around LA. I guess the farthest one I ever went was in 2005. I went to Anguilla and did a live Jimmy Buffett record. And while I was there, a uh, reggae festival. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of gear were you using then? Um, initial, well, it changed a lot. I mean, uh, I was using r- racks of, uh, uh, API preamps for a long time. And once we got away from the, the two inch tape, uh, recording on, I think we did a couple of projects on ADAS, but they really weren't, weren't too good for remotes, but, but, uh, got DA 78, the, the high res 24 bit ones and did a lot of projects on those. I actually spent some time last year with all my, with all the free time going through all my archives and transferring everything to, um, uh, to hard, you know, to Pro Tools, uh, even, yeah, actually, actually, d- I got a project, uh, did a project for some friends of mine, a band called Red Meat up in um, San Francisco. I, I uh, did about four albums with them, including a live one, but we had recorded them earlier um, in 1999, I think it was at a, a club called Jack Sugar Shack in Hollywood, and never, never finished the record, never put it out, but I suggested to them last year, the idea of finally doing it and and you're just giving it to them so they could make a little money because all their gigs of course got canceled. So we did that and they put it out themselves and I'm real happy, <laughs> happy among other things to have it finally come out. But yeah, you know, pulled out the the two uh, it was 16 track uh, recorded on two D88s. I remember vividly sitting in the in the kitchen at the club with my little you know with my gear and uh, recording the whole thing. So a few of those, and I've got a bunch of other shows from, you know, from the 2000s and, uh, and back, uh, done the same way, you know, uh, rack of DA 78s and, you know, a bunch of preamps. And then at some, I think it was after that, uh, started to get a little more remote proficient and bought Aphex, um, 1788s. And, um, I had one of the early digital consoles, the Mackie X bus, I think it was called. Yeah. Um, which was actually an amazing sounding little board. It was still analog. So we're still, you know, patching everything up, you know, with analog uh, uh, you know, DB25s, but it had, re- you know, it had recall and it was a real good surface. And most importantly, it sounded really good. I went out around 2000, around 2000, that same, about the same time, I think 2005 and did about a seven or eight date tour with Santana on the West coast. Um, with all that gear. And at that point I had moved, uh, I, I had the Gen X, um, I think it was 9048 or something there, their 48 track machine. And while it would do, I think it would do Maddie, but we were, we were still doing it all analog. And when they worked, they were great. I mean, well, be able to do 48 tracks on, you know, whatever that thing was about five or six rack spaces was, was, was great, but they, the machines could be problematic. And uh, kind of like Stevens, the uh, the company got very squirrely, and I eventually had to abandon those and uh, move move to Pro Tools. And I remember doing a show at the at the Fonda Theater here in Hollywood, and um, we were still analog, so renting uh, uh, three hundred feet of hose to uh, get the mic lines down to the basement. Not to mention dragging all the gear down to the basement. And I remember we're packing that thing up and I'm thinking, all right, that's it. You know, I'm, 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 I'm going fiber and, uh, you know, we're going to go all Maddie. And, uh, you know, so I've got that infrastructure, which may, 
which made things a whole lot easier. You know, put the preamps, put the preamps on stage and remote the whole thing. When did you get into a truck? 2009, I approached the partners in Music Mix Mobile, which were largely the guys that had uh, been running the trucks for F&L. Randy Azrati, who owned that, was an old friend of mine. Actually, I did a lot of work out here when Randy had a, you know, had, the, had a job that uh, obviously they couldn't do. He, they'd send us out to do the job. And uh, F&L got bought by XM or Sirius Radio. I forget what, maybe it was before the, probably before the merger. And um, I don't know how long it was after that, but at some point uh, Sirius XM merged and decided to shut down the remote division. So these guys had started, went out on their own and built, you know, built a truck. Bob Wharton, me and I, uh, uh, an engineer that I'd worked with for years and years, uh, with with my remote stuff, uh, approached them about becoming the West Coast division, and so we built a truck uh, spec to duplicate theirs because uh, there were two major shows we did every year, the CMAs and the Grammys, where the uh, workflow was because you got two stages, and the workflow was to record you know, record the sound check in the one truck, and then we actually just remote controlled the the systems uh move move the move it over to the second truck which is which is duplicated so the you know the engineer and the and the band rep could keep working on the mix while they recorded the next band sounds sound check in the first truck and we would just keep doing that you know for whatever it was three or four days and then on the show the broadcast would come out of the, the other truck and our truck would get used um for the line checks and was also there in case something blew up. I mean, we, you know, we had all the files, so we could actually be on the air in about, you know, 20 seconds. Never happened. But the object was to have two identical trucks. So we doubled their, um, their inventory, if you will, uh, instantly. And I think the, the first thing we did out here was the Latin VMAs. And then the week after that, we did U2 at the Rose Bowl. So... You know, it was a pretty good jump in, and we did the VMAs for a few years, and did the you know, the CMAs and the Grammys. What for 11, 12 years? Uh, did all the iHeart stuff, and mostly, you know, mostly uh, uh, for broadcast. Uh, the the occasional, you know, outside project. I mean, we did a we did a DVD project for Motley Crue. We did a big Eagles project a couple of years ago, but you know, there's there's just less artist recording. Yeah, you know, most most acts are recording their shows themselves every night. I mean, I had a few interesting <laughs> experiences. I well, actually I left out a section because I was actually I got hired and was working um, for a company out here around the same time in the two thousand five two thousand four somewhere that was doing a lot of the early. There was a lot of early music for music online that was being sponsored. Microsoft did it, Yamaha, I think, a um, bunch of these companies, AT and T. So there's a lot of that work. And I worked for this company, um, sometimes using my gear if it was out here or being sent you know, somewhere else, use somebody else's gear and then bring it back and mix. And towards the end of that period, because it all blew up in, I want to say 2008, there was some huge downturn in the market. Um, so all the money dried up, dried up. And um, uh, but, but it was early on when bands were starting to be able to record themselves. And at one point, uh, we were doing, uh, they did Cheryl Crow somewhere. I don't remember where it came from, but, and the producers allowed them 
to do the recording and they shipped it to me to mix. And the only problem was keyboard, the keyboards weren't there. <laughs> oh yeah. So, I mean, but luckily same, you know, same technology, I shipped the files back and they were in London now after, you know, after soundcheck one day, they played it back. The keyboard player played all these parts, sent it back to me. And there you go. Fortunately, it wasn't, you know, the drums or, <laughs> yeah. yeah, lead vocal or something. Yeah, yeah right. exactly. So that was the last time the producers ever allowed that to happen. We're running into it a bit, you know, uh, now, but well, you know, we'll, uh, <laughs> we've talked pre pandemic when there was a lot of work. We would get hired quite a bit, e even when it was well known that the, you know, the band had had a system, even a system with backup, because if you're doing a big video shoot, the audio record is, a, is, I won't say a drop in the bucket, but you don't want to be caught in that situation where <laughs> something, something doesn't get recorded. Because, you know, to be fair, the front of house mixer, you know, his responsibility is what's going on in, in the club and, um, you know, not, not going to watch levels and, uh, you know, has to have to hope that his, his template is right and all that. So it just makes sense, you know, uh, we, I remember we did we did kiss at the at the whiskey um, a few years ago, and uh, I mean this little tiny club and they've got their stuff in there and they've got their system and so, but they brought us in to uh, capture it uh, just you know to make sure that it was all you know going to be there when the day was done because you're not going to go back and and do it again. Well, you know I'm curious. So when you put together a truck, knowing that a lot of this is going to be for broadcast. How much does that dictate the gear that you get that you buy? Well, it's changed. I mean, it, the guys we were partnering with had worked out a, a very interesting system where obviously we're all recording in Pro Tools. I mean, there's no, you know, there's no alternative to that. But so we'd have two systems that would record. And I think when we started, maybe we had 96. No, we would have had, we probably had 128 tracks from the get-go or something like that. I don't know, because we're all natty. Um but they used a third Pro Tool system that was static. In other words, you didn't record on it. But we had a uh, a uh, Avid or Digi Design at the time uh, D Control, which is their which was their big uh, control surface you know, mouse, if you will. And we would it, we would feed everything, you know, the third a third Maddie stream to that, and you could use all your plugins. And you know, uh, we didn't automate, uh, but you could obviously call up a session or even a snapshot. And it's a great way to work. I still do it. We, I, I, I work at uh, the iHeart Theater uh, here in LA. And they, when that was built, the, the guy who designed it basically copied uh, what we were doing in the trucks and uh, put, in a, put in a D control, um, made the mistake of thinking he could record on the D control, which is a very bad idea. Uh, <laughs> It's a it's a great idea in that you know then everything you do will be captured, but you you really don't want to take that kind of risk. Um, but it's great because you you know do the whole thing, and and if we had to remix, then you just move the drives, and you're you know everything is all there. You just put the files in, and and um, and you can start mixing. However, it's not really the most you know uh, rock solid broadcast system. So in 2000, I want to say 16 or 15, somewhere in there, it was decided that we needed to get real digital consoles. So we got rid of the, the, um, the D controls and put in Lavo MC56 consoles. 
uh, which have 48 faders on 192, you know, channels. And I mean, sound really good. I mean, we, and we have outboard, uh, you know, wave systems and all that. And, in the, and they're pretty much bulletproof. I mean, they're redundant and it's kind of a broadcast standard. Uh, I have to say with all of this stuff, if there's a downside, it's knowing that a quarter million dollar console, you better get your money's worth out of it because at some point, like, you know, like the Capricorn, the Neve Capricorn that cost a quarter million bucks or whatever it was when it was new. It's just going to be a pile of junk. And, um, uh, you know, unlike, unlike an analog system that, um, good or bad has, you know, is going to continue to have a certain amount of value or a lot of value just, just because of its, uh, its age and its pedigree, the digital stuff doesn't work that way. I don't think anybody's going to ever come around and go, you know, I really, I really got to find some of those uh, digi design triple eights, uh, you know, to, uh, <laughs> I don't like the new stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, it's an, I mean, it's an evil. On the other hand, I mean, I remember, you know, when I put my first protein system together and, um, you know, a nine gigabyte SCSI drive, I still have one of them, was $1,500. Yeah. And now a one terabyte pocket drive will cost you 50 bucks. I mean, it's just, you know, I tell this, I've been telling this story recently. Um, in, in the early 80s, when I worked at Warner Brothers, I did about four or five, four or five albums with Ricky Lee Jones, Pirates and Magazine, Your Old Volcano. And on the second one, we recorded five shows here in LA with the record plan and used very little of it uh, maybe two or three songs and i wanted for years to do something with the stuff and actually kind of as a result of covid uh just you know talking to people I'd, I've, I've now found myself back uh working with her on uh an archive re-release of of that period so um warner's loaned me the tapes and sent them over and i've got pictures 27 reels of two inch tape laid out on the floor of my studio, transferred them all. They're 15 IPS, 24 tracks. So transferred them all at high, at a high res, uh, 192 to 24. And <laughs> this is the telling point. <clears throat> it, it easily fits on a one terabyte drive. That's, <laughs> you know, yeah. smaller and weighs less than my iPhone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And you can only imagine what, you know, what that much, just the tape alone. I mean, you know, that must've been, you know, five, $6,000 worth of tape, much less, you know, what the trucks cost. Okay. So then you went out on your own recently. Yeah. We just recently, yeah. Uh, Bob and I split off and, um, are now working independently, uh, under our, our business name, which is M and B audio LLC. It's still pretty slow out there. You know, we're, 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 we've done a few things. We're doing something next week. It seems like less is happening out here than on the East Coast for some reason. The East Coast, the major shows seem to be coming back a bit quicker than, than out here. But, you know, when I think about it, there were never as many shows out here anyway. Yeah, there's more venues there. Yeah, and... There's more people there. Yeah, there more people, and it's more spread out. And when I say back East, I mean it's all over the place. California, I mean, we... I, I think we only went to San Francisco, you know, maybe three or four times, if that many times in the uh, 11 years, you know, 11, the 11 preceding years, pretty much all L- LA. I mean, the truck occasionally would go, you know, somewhere far out of state or to Vegas. Um, but uh, yeah, most of it was just, you know, LA, the Greek or the Hollywood bowl. I mean, we did a lot, a lot of shows and the years prior to the pandemic were, were very busy with all kinds of stuff, but 
for whatever reason, it seems like a lot of that just hasn't come back yet. <laughs> now, I'm curious. So there's lots of feeds going out when you're doing this. Are they all coming from your truck? Well, yeah, I mean, we're doing the music. So, you know, in a big show, our trucks will be doing the, you know, doing the music mix and that gets piped in various ways to the video truck where the A1 is, you know, is integrating the music with the hosts and the, you know, voice of God and the playbacks. And I mean, you know, just marrying all that and then shipping, you know, shipping that out for broadcast. And a um, couple of the big shows would be five one, but primarily still just, just stereo. And now, of course, the question is, we're gonna, are we going to get into immersive audio for, mm. <laughs> for broadcast? I hope not. Oh, God. 7.1.4. I'm looking at that for a, a studio setup at this point for a variety of reasons. Of course, I hope, <laughs> suspect it may go the way of DVDA and uh, SACD surround, but we'll see. Yeah, you know, I looked into that myself, and there's no cheap and easy way to get into it that's for sure i don't know if it's i mean it's about the same as getting into five one the impression i'm getting is that it's well the biggest expense seems to be the the speakers how you're going to set your speakers up well and the biggest problem that that I, I i keep hearing from people is that if you do an immersive mix and put it online somebody tries to go to you know uh, go to stereo you, apparently you're supposed to be able to select the original stereo mix but if you don't do that and it down mixes, it will sound horrible because the center, you know, it's, it's a, it's a film, it's a, it's a system designed basically for film. And so the center channel would normally be the dialogue track. So you want that quite loud, but in music, yes. And apparently it's from, I mean, I haven't done any of this stuff yet, but people that have, that have been working in it say that you can't really, you can't really make a compatible uh, immersive mix for stereo. It, it was something you could do pretty easily in five one, and we were we were always looking at that. We had da- you know we had uh, down mixed uh, Dolby boxes, and uh, I mean the main thing is you just you were very conscious of what you were putting in the center speaker, which wasn't a whole heck of a lot um, in five one. You certainly didn't want to feature the the vocals there because then somebody could pick that was another consideration of broadcast is not you know or, or even in the dvda not being able to pick the uh pick, you know pick pick the mix apart uh by listening to various channels <laughs> yeah yeah right 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 uh getting back to your truck for a second so what would you consider an easy gig well one band <laughs> so it's one setup the complicated ones are when you're doing it you know you're doing a show that has you know, multiple bands and multiple recalls. So there's all the rehearsal. And then, you know, it, uh, if it's, if it's something like the Grammys or the CMAs or whatever going out live, I mean, it, it just has to go. I mean, uh, and the thing that always impressed me was, you know, the, the, the stage guys that could, that would run a show like that. And uh, um, I used to do the line checks and it was always amusing you know, do one of these shows and you're sitting there and, you know, okay. So, band finishes on stage a and they go over and now that the band is playing on stage b and you're looking at your script and you're seeing well we've got it but we've got about 15 minutes or whatever it is you know you get you a timing so you start and then you just have to watch the clock because it, you know that they have to they have, they have to strike the band put the next one up patch it and then we have to do a line check and i can i can remember i think it was the grammys one year and mccartney was on it and um you know, we're like way his magic piano, his upright piano. And we're way, you know, we're getting, you know, we'll, we'll get as much as we can get done. I mean, I could, you know, I could do the, 
the law always says always playback. So we can do the playback instantly and we'll try, you know, try to do the vocal mics, things that don't move so much, but we're like waiting and waiting in the magic piano. And it's like, you know, 15 seconds to air and we finally hear it. <laughs> That's nerve wracking. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah well, it, 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 it's nerve wracking and it's artificially nerve wracking. Maybe it seems even more so now because yeah, you, all, it's like all things in this business. You, you get, you get awfully, um, intense about things that let's face it in, in the in the bigger order of life don't um, don't really mean a whole heck of a lot but um it's that it's that balance between taking it seriously and and uh, yeah you know as we used to say we're not curing cancer here uh but those yeah those shows can be pretty pretty nerve-wracking is power a problem anymore? It seems like everybody's kind of worked that out. Getting up. power? No. I mean, if, you, if it isn't, if there isn't shore power, and there usually isn't, um, you know, there's these huge there's companies just dedicated to, to providing power with huge, uh, you know, generators and, you know, doing all the distro. And so, you know, we just take our cams and you know, we, our truck draw, well, we have, we asked for 100 amps uh, single phase, but it, it doesn't draw anywhere near that. But, of course, it has to run the air conditioning as well as the gear. The air conditioning is probably bigger than anything. Um, so that's not a problem. And the other beauty of working with a digital system, I mean, we're not running, you know, hundreds or thousands of feet of copper to get the mics to the truck, uh, which, first of all, improves the sonics enormously. I, I, I'm always impressed. You know, we've got preamps on stage that are being – um, via Maddie to to the recorders and the you know the mixer quote unquote so I mean it's you know it ridiculously reduces the length and then of course being on a digital system as opposed to an analog console with patch bays and wiring and transformers and all that I mean it's, you know it definitely is uh, uh, affects the sound and um, it's hard to be totally objective because we're not you'd have to you'd have to set up a neve console and you know and a whole digital system and just see how they compare it but it always seems to me like the amount of work if you will that you need to do in a lot of cases to get to get the thing sounding good is less with an all digital system than it would be if you were if you're trying to do this analog and that's of course besides the fact that you know once it's all done you store it you know push a button and it comes it comes right back which is amazing considering that you're basically an analog guy and your studio has so much vintage gear and i haven't you and i haven't used it in about four years but yeah okay <laughs> but again you seem to be somewhat the convert oh totally i i i would never want to go back to mixing um recording to tape or or mixing analog no i i and i and i don't say that uh, I mean, the convenience is is very nice, but do you know do all my mixing in the box now? And what I really like about it, first and foremost, is that it it allows you to just be creative. You you do not have to be hindered or, or, uh, by the technology um, to get real basic. When I I remember you know back in the days of mixing pre automation, not that it changed that much. You know, and you got four four guys on the console, and you figure it all out, and you got tape and lines, and I mean, it's just now we have we have fader automation, but now we're running two twenty four tracks or you know forty eight tracks Sony and God knows what else. So we have this huge console, and um, you know, very limited what you can do. I mean, certain amount of outboard gear, but you know, really kind of limited. And then if you're if if it's decided you need to do a remix, 
I mean, I remember these things. All right, we'll go in at 10 in the morning and we'll recall the mix. You guys come in around two o'clock and it's, it'll never sound exactly the same. I don't care what, you know, even, even when we got to SSLs and you could, you know, you knew the match thing and, you know, all that. I mean, it, it's just ridiculous. And pl- add to that the fact that, you know, there, there are so many creative <clears throat> ways you can, you can uh, process in the box. I mean, sub buses, and I've been, I use this all the time, especially with live stuff, you know, sub buses and automating echo sends and adding, you know, and you can automate anything you want and you can just do it and <clears throat> say, I like it and, you know, uh, move on. And, you know, if you, 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 you can do it, you can do, essentially you can do that, that, that wonderful rough mix thing, you know, the old, the old jugger, you know, we worked on this mix for two days, but something about the rough mix yeah, feels yeah, right. better, you know, well, you don't, ha- you, you really don't have that anymore. You don't have the, the downside of that anymore because, you know, you can always, you know, you can always work that way. Now you can certainly go, you know, right past it and, you know keep changing it um, uh, when you're no longer improving it. Hey, so so there's, it's it's nothing's absolute, but yeah, I wouldn't want to go back. And then, you know, and I don't care personally, does, does this plug in that looks like a 1073 really sound like a 1073? I just want to know whether it does what I want it to do. Uh, So I, you know, I use the waves, the EQ4, which is a 1073. I've probably got six other 1073s, you know, available, but that's just the one I use. And it, what I find ironic is that I, I was never a big Neve fan in the analog days. I preferred APIs and I have an API, great big API in the box. I hardly ever use API. <laughs> um, I, I use, I use the Neve EQs and then a lot of other stuff uh, that doesn't necessarily exist in the real world. And that's another, that's another great thing about the box is that, uh, there's all kinds of stuff now that, you know, you, you almost, well, not that you couldn't emulate it, but almost impractical. I mean, uh, some of these plugins now that are, you know, transformer um, uh, emulations and um, I mean, you know, the, the, the tape machine emulations and, uh, you know, all these things that contribute to the sonic signature that either don't exist, <laughs> they don't exist in the real world or they'd be really, really complicated to try to achieve. And, you know, bottom line, I think, is in the end, you, you, if, you, if you work to the same end with, the, with the two completely different systems, how much different? I mean, would the analog approach be any better? I mean, I'm amazed. I have heard this from studio owners out here that I got people coming in and recording on two-inch tape and mixing on the big SSL console. And I, I just, I don't... Yeah, I, yeah. I don't get it. <laughs> I just yeah. don't. I mean, um, maybe, you know, in some cases, maybe it's just not having that many choices. But I remember doing projects where, I mean, for, you know, 48 tracks to me now seems like nothing. But in analog terms, I mean, that was, you know, almost, you know, just impossible to deal with, you know, uh, uh, the way you might, you may, you would prefer because it was just so many things that if nothing else, you know, we now work with relatively small number of faders because you can move them. So yeah. most of my mixing these days is, is done on a pair of uh, S, uh, Avid S1s. So I've got 16 faders and I move, you know, I can do subgroups and, you know, which is great too, but, you know, I just make everything come to me. So I never have to move from the sweet spot. 
Uh, it's almost impossible for me to move from the sweet spot. Um, and I don't have this big reflective surface and, you know, yeah, yeah, no, I get so, it. Yeah. 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 Um, I was gonna say when I work live, we have a 32 fader surface and while we tip, you know, we typically will get, you know, 60, 70 channels coming in, you just custom build fader banks and, you know, I don't have to have <laughs> way over here, 10 tracks of drums that I can't reach. I build a bank that's just drums. And if I push one button, there it is in front of me. I push the other button and the, the sure, I keep a drum submix fader on the, you know, on the main, but I'm probably not going to need that if I'm mixing a live broadcast. So I just, I can compact everything one way or the other down to 32 faders. And that's, you know, that's, that's a reasonable, you know, package to sit in front of. You can find out more about Mark and the Horizon Remote Audio Truck at mnbaudio.com. That's M-A-N-D-B-M-N-B-Audio.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, where you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.